0: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Today, I want to respond to a question that came in from one of our regular viewers or listeners here at All Saints concerning an aspect of our worship service which had been puzzling her. And so she asked, Hey, why do we do this? The question was, Why do we stand for the gospel reading but not for all the other readings? Now, Uh, If you're a member of All Saints, you'll be familiar with what we do in our service. We have multiple scripture readings. We have an Old Testament reading. We have a New Testament reading, both of which we sit for. Then we have a gospel reading for which we stand. We actually then have a fourth reading of of scripture immediately prior to the sermon. We're also standing for that. Although in the liturgical flow of the service, we're standing then because we've just been standing for the gospel reading. What I'm about to say Uh, as a rationale for why we stand for the gospel does not apply in quite the same way for that sermon reading. There are other good reasons why we remain standing there. Maybe I might get to them at the end or on another occasion. We'll see how the time goes here. Uh, But I do want to address this question. We've got the Old Testament reading, we're sitting. It's read by a deacon or an elder. We have the New Testament reading. Again, it's read by a deacon or an elder and we're sitting for it. And then the minister of word and sacrament, either Pastor Neil or myself, would walk to the center of the church, stand in front of everybody and ask you all to stand for the gospel reading. So it's a very marked and decisive difference between the Old and New Testament readings on the one hand and the gospel reading on the other. So why would we make such a big deal out of it um, if a big deal is uh, what it signifies? And it does signify that it's a big deal. Um, And I think it's a really helpful question because what it allows us to do is to just explore this small but not insignificant aspect of our liturgy and try and probe what it means and uh, just clarify some things it doesn't mean. So let me just jump into this with some uh, initial thoughts. The first thing to say is that we need to clarify what standing for the gospel does not signify. Standing for the gospel does not signify that in any sense... The other readings are less the Word of God or less inspired or less authoritative or less practically relevant or have any kind of lower status as Scripture in any sense at all. Uh, All of the readings of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Gospel, whatever it is for the Sermon, all come from the inspired word of God. In no sense are we saying, by standing, that we're downgrading the other parts, and this is the real word of God, and all the rest is kind of the word of God emeritus, or or the um, the kind of uh, the word of God that isn't really the word of God. Um, we, the it's it's hard. To, I had a conversation with the lady who asked this question and I found myself having to try and find many different ways of saying this because it's such a hard point, misunderstanding to dislodge. Um, Part of the reason why it's a hard point to dislodge actually goes back to some of our own historical background as an evangelical and reformed church. It might be worth saying a word or two about this and then I'll circle back and say the same thing again 50 times because I want to emphasize it. In our... um, history, our recent history, uh, as a um, Presbyterian uh, church, I'm talking about the the Reformed Presbyterian world broadly, and evangelical Christians, that is Bible-believing Christians, most of our conversations about scripture have been shaped by our interaction with so-called liberal theology. And by liberal theology, in this sense, I don't mean politically liberal, either in the classically liberal or contemporary progressive sense. I mean, liberal theology which emphasized um, personal experience and the role of reason and rationality and de-emphasized the importance of the scriptures and indeed sought at various points to undermine the scriptures. I'm thinking of, for those of you who've done some reading in uh, historical theology from the 19th century, the higher critical movement and uh, uh, the schools of liberal theology that originated in Britain and Germany and found their way over here to the U.S., Uh, at the end of the 19th century and throughout the 20th century. Now, that's uh, an important part of the backdrop against which Reformed and Evangelical Christians have defined themselves in recent decades and recent years. And one of the things that that school of liberal theology did was to question and even dismiss, sometimes quite contemptuously, large tracts of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. So what they'd say was, you know, well, Book of Genesis, you can't trust that. It's just a, like ancient mythology. Uh, all of the so-called history books of the Old Testament were written way after the events they purport to describe and are really just kind of post hoc rationalizations for the various political and social situations that the Jewish people found themselves in, if indeed there was ever really a Jewish people, which they claim there really wasn't at various points, especially earlier in their history. And and so when you get down to individual nitty gritty books, like let's say the book of Joshua, which I'm preaching through now, um, many in the liberal theological school will really regard that this is a series of pious um, uh, fabrications. And indeed, uh, deeply amoral or immoral fabrications, which represent not just a bunch of historical claims that aren't historically true, but they represent a moral position which is deeply morally flawed. And so this is the background against which recent Reformed and recent evangelical theology has defined itself. We're fighting, so to speak, against invisible liberals from the 19th and 20th centuries who want to dismiss large swathes of the scriptures, especially the Old Testament. Uh, they'll probably question whether most of the letters that bear the apostle Paul's name were written by him um, the Book of Revelation was written well into the second century, not by the Apostle John and so on and so forth. Uh, and even parts of the Gospels, liberal theology will question, but what they will tend to do, what liberal theology will tend to do is to hold up the ethics of Jesus as represented in the Gospel, in, in the Gospels, sorry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to hold up the ethics of Jesus as praiseworthy in a way that the ethics of Paul and the other uh, writers of the New Testament epistles are not, and certainly the ethics of the Old Testament are not. So this is our background. First, liberal theology questions the historicity of vast parts of the Old Testament, and indeed some parts of the New Testament. Second, it dramatically downgrades the morality of large parts of the Old Testament. So in that context... Our affirmations about scripture as evangelicals have tended to focus on saying, we believe the whole of scripture is inspired. We believe that the whole of scripture represents a moral framework which is good and godly and praiseworthy, albeit one which required from God's people different actions at different times. But nonetheless, those actions required at those times were good things to do. And certainly, the historical books of the Old Testament represent historical events that happened. You've heard me preaching through the book of Joshua, I got to in chapter 21. I hope it's never occurred to you for a moment that I question any of the historical events in the book of Joshua, because I don't question any of the historical events in the book of Joshua. It's a history book among also other things, being a theology book and so on and so forth, a book of teaching. But it's a historical account of historical events that happened, long day included. So we define ourselves, therefore, against the background of those liberal theological counterclaims. Now what that means is we have this kind of knee-jerk instinct, which, and here's a crucial point, we might not even realise we have this knee-jerk instinct where we want to affirm the inspiration, authority, trustworthiness, inerrancy, that means that it never errs, never makes mistakes or errors, of the whole of Scripture. We don't want to just say, like many liberal scholars have done, well, the Gospels represent a wonderful and glorious Christian ethic and contain some historical detail that may be true, though not the miracles, though in many cases they want to deny that, whereas the Old Testament is this barbaric, pre-Christian, amoral, and fabricated mythology. We we don't want to say that. We want to affirm against that background the truthfulness and the, the, the goodness, the ethical goodness of the whole Bible. What that means then is when we get to this practice of standing for the gospel, but not for, let's say, the Old Testament or for the reading from the New Testament letters, we get sometimes a little bit jumpy Because, and here's the crucial point as it relates to the liturgy that we're talking about, to stand for the gospel but not for the Old Testament feels to us like, oh, maybe we're joining with the liberal theologians. We might not realise that's what we're thinking, but in the background that's what's going on in our minds. Maybe we're joining with this liberal tendency or liberal tradition of downgrading the Old Testament. We're going to sit. Upgrading the gospels. We're going to stand. Can you see? So... In this way, what's happened is the backdrop, even the unconscious backdrop against which our theology is formulated has shaped how we think about the actions that we're performing. And so it's important, let me circle back again to where I began, to affirm and clarify that by standing for the gospel readings, but not standing for the New Testament and the Old Testament readings, we are not joining with liberal theologians in affirming that the gospels are great and morally praiseworthy and true whereas the old testament is barbaric mythology we're not saying that and i I don't know how to get this across sometimes it's you know how it's hard to um fight against the unacknowledged backdrop to to our thinking we can we can counteract things that we're thinking about self-consciously But it's hard to counteract things that we're thinking about subconsciously. And so at the risk of just boring you, and you're going to turn this podcast off at some point, um, let me just say it again. What we're not saying by standing for the gospel is that the gospel is ethically praiseworthy. The rest of the Bible is not. The gospel is ethically true. uh, The rest of the um, readings are not. The, The gospels are historically accurate. The rest of the readings are not. We're not saying those things. We're much less, are we saying, that the, the, the Gospels are more inspired or more inerrant than the rest of the Bible. The whole of the Scriptures are truthful, true, inerrant, inspired, authoritative words from God. So, that's not what we're saying. So, okay, what, what are we saying then? And in order to tease this out, um, I want to try and draw your attention to the character of Scripture itself. What, what does Scripture depict and the crucial point, this is something that um, Pastor Neil mentioned when I, um, I talked with him about this. And I said, have you got any thoughts about this? He said, well, uh, here are a few thoughts. I'm not much of a podcast kind of guy, but here are a few thoughts. Why well, I can't persuade him to come on this podcast. I'd love him to join me, but he has other things that he's doing which keep him very, very busy. Um, uh, this is not saying the rest of the scriptures are unimportant, first thing he said. But then he says, he starts to speak, and I think this is such a valuable point, of the ways in which the, the Bible as a whole is a coherent, single narrative which climaxes and finds its fulfillment in the events described in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We talk about the Gospel as being the central claim or cluster of claims um, at the heart of our faith. Uh, The the message that Jesus Christ, the the Galilean uh, peasant's son, is the Son of God, the Lord, the Christ, the ruler of all the earth, that he's crowned as king, that his kingdom is God's kingdom, and that that kingdom is growing and expanding across the whole earth and will continue to do so before he returns in glory to claim visibly and personally all that which is his own. That's one way of formulating the gospel. And, <coughs> pardon me, that, of course, he was crowned in his death and all the, 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 the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John lead up to the account of his crucifixion and his resurrection Um, and so um, the character of his death shows us how he accomplishes the mission that he's um, uh, come to undertake that is by placing himself in the position of being judged and condemned for our sins and then being raised to bring new life not just himself but to the whole world um that that's the the heart of the story to which the scriptures as a whole point now that story um the heart of that story rather the gospel is told in four ways in scripture Matthew Mark Luke and John and one interesting side point here is to note that uh, they're not called um a, uh, a historical description of the events surrounding the gospel they're actually just called the gospel according to John or the gospel according to Mark the old Greek title um, of those books is simply according to Mark or according to Matthew or according to John. The implication being that this is the climax of the story in Mark's words. This is the climax of the story in Luke's or Matthew's or John's words. But what is that story? Well, the story is the narrative of the whole of Scripture. And that whole of Scripture is God's telling of His work in the world to bring it into being, creation, to redeem it from sin and death and judgment through the rest of the story of history and to point forward to the culmination of history that lies in the future. And the Gospels have this unique position within that story at the point where they reveal the identity of the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, on whom this whole story focuses, And they show us how it is that he's going to be performing his central task, the tasks that were set out or pointed to by the preceding uh, portions of Scripture, the whole of the Old Testament, and which are then fleshed out in the Scriptures that follow. So it's not then that the Gospels are more important in some abstract sense than the rest of the book, the the Bible, or the other books of the Bible, I suppose you might say. It's that the Gospels have this uh, central place in the plot of the book as a whole. Let me uh, suggest um, an illustration that might be helpful. If you read detective novels, you might have a detective novel that's got um, 20 chapters. And the identity of the murderer is revealed in the 19th chapter. So what would you say about that 19th chapter in relation to the other 19 chapters? Well, you wouldn't say it's more important in some abstract sense. Like, well, this is really the author's work and the other chapters aren't. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say it's more true than all the stuff in the other chapters. But you would note, wouldn't you, that the function of all the other chapters before it is to create the environment in the narrative in which the revelation of the... Uh, the murderer in this case, um, makes sense and is climactic and dramatic and brings the story to uh, its denouement. And then the uh, the final chapter, the one that comes after it, we might liken that to the rest of the New Testament, um, is showing the implications of that and you know, how the relationships in, in the, the family that suffered as a result of all the, the horrors of the detective or how, how they were all kind of restored or whatever else it was. Um, but the point is that that, that chapter that where the, the murderer is revealed has a significant place within the whole that doesn't downgrade the rest of it, but it does warrant particular attention. And so If that illustration is helpful, maybe it it, um, serves to articulate the sense in which we want to point particularly to the gospel. The gospel is the, sorry, the gospels in the Bible are the portions of God's story of history where not the murderer is revealed, but the victim is revealed, the king is revealed. The character of his kingdom and his reign and what he requires of his disciples is unfolded most explicitly and clearly. This is it's not more inspired or more true or even more morally praiseworthy, but it is more central to the plot of the scriptures as a whole. Now, that warrants some kind of attention, doesn't it? Uh, the question is then how should we show that attention? And why would we do so by standing? And at this point, I want to suggest actually to stand is a peculiarly appropriate way of showing attention to this particular moment in the narrative of the whole Bible. The the gesture that we should adopt to call attention to the specialness, so to speak, of This climactic moment in God's story is going to depend on what is special about this particular moment in God's story. So what happens in the Gospels? Well, it's about the king, isn't it? All four of them are about the identity and the works and the suffering and the coronation of the cross and the death and resurrection of our king. It's especially, I mean, you see in Mark's gospel, you also see in John's gospel, and in different ways in Mark and uh, Matthew and Luke, um, the whole of the narrative is shaped around uh, the identification of the Christ. Who is the Christ, the anointed one, who will fulfill all the promises of God under the old covenant? Uh, Oh, it's this man, this Jesus, whom you crucified has been made Lord and Christ. That's what Peter says in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, isn't it? And so, well, how do you... Mark out the specialness of the moment of the coronation of a king. Well, okay, I can I can tell you that uh, because I hail from a country that still has them. Uh, you stand. You stand for the moment of the king's coronation. Uh, it's not that all the preceding or succeeding moments are unimportant. You know, when the, the duties of the king are being laid out or when... Um, prayers are being prayed for the king or um, when uh, the uh, the congregation is joining in praise to god for the king it's not that those things are unimportant but you'd stand for that particular moment because that's how you give honor to a king the king is enthroned and is seated on his throne all the princes and all the rest of his people stand in adulation of him and so in one sense it is like standing to attention at the coronation of the king and if there's a practical take-home from this, then maybe well, maybe this is one of them. Um, we stand to attention to hear a portion being read from the account of the coronation of the king, the unveiling of our king, Jesus. Pastor Neil has um, another really fascinating um, suggestion, which also highlights why standing is particularly appropriate at this juncture. Um just quote from what he said in an email he wrote to me. It's very helpful. By standing, we're giving honor as we would for the aged. In Leviticus nineteen twenty two. you stand in the presence of a gray head. So how much more, if we're going to stand in the presence of a gray head, and I know you would if, uh, let's suppose, your grandmother or grandfather walked into the room, you know, they just arrived for Christmas or Thanksgiving, and you were sitting down with your family, you'd stand to greet them. I hope you wouldn't just away from the sofa. You'd stand to greet them. You show honour to a grey head, and perhaps you'd offer them your seat because stand in the presence of a grey head. Give honour to those who are aged. Well, Pastor Neil um, continues somewhat wryly. How much more should we stand for the one who is the I am before Abraham was? Jesus is the uh, ultimate, aged, white haired king, and he's depicted with white hair, isn't he, in Revelation chapter 1, to depict his. Um, uh, the honour that is due to one who has been around for a long time. And Jesus says famously, uh, Before Abraham was, I am. So you're standing in the presence of the aged. I think it's, uh, it was also helpful to think, just a final point, um, as we're reflecting on the relationship between the Gospels and the rest of Scripture, just to highlight again that we are not downgrading the rest of Scripture. By standing for the gospel. And one way to think about this is to say, well, what would Isaiah have wanted? Imagine you know, if Isaiah and you and Isaiah and Jeremiah and um, Hosea and one or two of the other prophets, Moses maybe, you're, you're sitting together having a cup of tea in glory and um, uh, considering the question, why did we stand in worship when John's portion of scripture was read and Matthew and Mark, but not when Moses or Isaiah? or Jeremiah, or Daniel, or Hosea's portion of Scripture was read. Well, what would Isaiah say at this point? Would he not say that it is entirely appropriate, and in keeping with his message, the book of Isaiah, that we should give particular honour to the Scriptures that reveal the identity of the one about whom he hints in his book? I think Isaiah would want us to show greater honour, not to his words, the prophet Isaiah's words, looking forward to the day when Jesus will be unveiled, but to the actual unveiling of Jesus. If there's a part of scripture that warrants, uh, not the description of greater inspiration or importance in that abstract sense, but that warrants the recognition that it is the heart of the story and the focus of what everything else is about. Isaiah would hold both hands up, I think, and say, listen, yeah, Um, I I wrote all my stuff under inspiration of the Spirit pointing forward to this one. And uh, yes, you were right to stand and show particular honor to the King, to Jesus himself, of whose coronation you were finally reading when you read or heard the gospel being read. So I think... uh, that thought experiment, what would the human authors of the rest of scripture think about our practice, serves to underscore the point we are not downgrading the rest of scripture by standing for the gospel, rather we are recognizing that those other portions of scripture only have any uh, meaning at all in relation to and as part of the story that leads to or flows from the climax of the story, the climax of the narrative, uh, as it's depicted in the gospel's of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is why we stand for them. Well, I hope that's helpful. I don't suppose it's answered every single question. I haven't touched on why we remain standing for the sermon, and maybe that'll be a a question to think about another time. But I think that'll do us for now. Uh, The Lord bless you, and I look forward to seeing you all very soon. Bye for now.